Section 5 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section 5. Emerson. Part 2. Christianity preaches original sin. Emerson, like the Unitarians, preaches original virtue. His serene manner of reversing some of the facts of life so that they all face one way is at some moments irritating, but in the end and on the whole it is exhilarating. It is a poetic, emotional way of reading life. It is Browning's way and is wholly satisfactory in him until overzealous admirers try to make a philosopher of him and reduce his thoughts to prose, thereby killing the poetry. Emerson is a prose rhapsodist and psalmist, and though he is never quite free from the atmosphere of lyceum, platform, and pulpit, though he uses the vocabulary of theology and philosophy, he is impatient of argument and sits augustly above the plains of logic. This would justly exclude him from the company of philosophers, but for one thing the philosophers themselves are not logical, and they play fast and loose with facts. In the chapter called Considerations by the Way, in The Conduct of Life, Emerson says, In front of these sinister facts, the first lesson of history is the good of evil. Then follow three pages of historic illustration in which events are so simply, so cheaply motivated that one knows that history was not made in any such storybook fashion. But as Emerson says of the old physicians, the meaning holds if the physiology is a little mythical. He often carries his points in a high-handed manner. If any illustration be not grounded in reality, he will cordially yield it and proceed undismayed. We know from the memoirs of his contemporaries that Emerson's personality carried authority, that even when they did not fully understand him, his audiences followed him because his character fascinated them and persuaded them to believe him. With his death, a magic passed from his work which the modern reader cannot recall. Certainly he was one of those to be included in Hazlitt's list of persons one would wish to have seen. Those who heard him felt the ennobling spell of his presence. The more vigorous Carlyle bowed his head for once and acknowledged a superior. Moreover, the audiences of those days heard from Emerson many witty and colloquial asides which do not appear in his writings, and which mitigated the continuously lofty tone and fetched him back from a starry aloofness. I do not, he says, often speak to public questions. They are odious and hurtful, and it seems like meddling in leaving your work. I have my own spirits in prison, spirits in deeper prisons whom no man visits if I do not but he did speak to a good purpose on public questions, and his asides reported by those who heard him, and his letters reveal the practical shrewd Yankee in him, a man among his neighbors as well as a preacher from the hilltop. 
His high thinking sometimes loses itself in the skies as when he says, There are moments when the affections rule and absorb a man and make his happiness dependent on a person or persons. But in health the mind is presently seen again, its overarching vault bright with galaxies of immutable lights, and the warm love and fears that swept over us as clouds must lose their finite character and blend with God, to attain their own perfection. The seer who lives at ease in such astronomical heights wrote to a friend, Everything wakes this morning except my darling boy. And he wrote to Carlyle of the farmers, traditionally the honest backbone of the country. Horace Greeley does their thinking for them at a dollar a head. Emerson walked on the roads of a New England town and read the daily newspapers. Sanctified airs he abominated, and he must have disconcerted some rapt admirers who approached him in adoring mood by his whimsical air-cleaning good sense. He was reserved but not timid. He was not afraid to write things down coarsely as they stand. The vigor of Emerson's attacks on plain daily political hypocrisy and commercial corruption is doubled by the habitual serenity of the man. A saint on fire is a more persuasive attorney for the prosecution than the chronic objector. The haloed Emerson has been well respected and remembered, but the citizen Emerson has been obscured by the light of the oriel. To read him in his entirety his letters and journals, and the reports of his real as well as his professional conversations, is to become acquainted with the very spectrum of the human race. Just to hint the flaw which is necessary to a convincing portrait, one may object gently to his blowing hot and cold on Whitman. He did not quite stand to the guns of his first conviction that Whitman was at the beginning of a great career and his annoyance at Whitman's use in good faith of his emphatic words of approval was quite natural and human. The rest of us common mortals would have been more annoyed, and we should not have had the brains to see Whitman's merits at once, as Emerson saw them without waiting for other people to point them out. Emerson is one of the few great preachers who do not stand small in their pulpits, and who do not lay their greatness aside in the robing-room after the service. His gracious and substantial character is behind his sermons. Arnold, Carlyle, Ruskin have faults that repel the congregation, even though it comes willingly to the next discourse. Arnold's intellectual snobbery, Carlyle's raucous ill-temper and his falsification of verifiable matters of fact, Ruskin's querulous superiority, his prolix over-explanatory patronage of us naughty little schoolboys, these faults no fault of Emerson's resembles or equals. He preached culture. Like Goethe, he was culture. He impels us to lofty thinking by exemplifying it in our presence, whereas Arnold's insistence on culture, itself a droning preponderance, such as Emerson thought true culture should modulate, makes a healthy man yearn to commit some gross vulgarity. Arnold, who will lead us to the excellence of Homer, spends half his time laying a ferrule on Homer's translators and biographers, so that one wearies of the schoolroom smell and longs for the shining strand before Troy. Carlyle, who will improve his country, assassinates it. England, he says, 
is dying of inanition. It obstinately refuses to die, but reveals a quite unphilosophic will to survive its grave diseases and justify Emerson's buoyant prediction, let who will fail, England will not. If Emerson has a deaf spot in his ear and can be guilty of a puzzling stupidity when he says, France where poet never grew, at least he does not wipe France from the map of Europe, but writes a hearty essay on Montaigne. Emerson glorifies religion because it is a natural and beautiful function of humanity to worship excellence. Carlyle hurls religion at us because we are miserable fools that need to be policed, and so we quite cheerfully fling it back. Ruskin, a theologian at heart and by the insuperable tradition of his youthful discipline, must be always haranguing us into obedience to himself and other lofty persons. He warns us, when we would be free from superstitions and miseries, that the fly on the ceiling is the perfect embodiment of freedom. Though Emerson has no delusions about the multitude, and though in one place he talks like a Malthusian and an aristocrat, he is not long in this mood. Reader's note. There is a footnote at the word aristocrat, which reads, Leave this hypocritical prating about the masses. Masses are rude, lame, unmade, pernicious in their demands and influence, and need not be flattered, but to be schooled. I wish not to concede anything to them, but to tame, drill, divide, and break them up, and draw individuals out of them. The worst of charity is that the lives you are asked to preserve are not worth preserving. Masses! The calamity is the masses. I do not wish any mass at all, but honest men only, lovely, sweet, accomplished women only, and no shovel-handed, narrow-brained, gin-drinking million-stockingers and lazeroni at all. If government knew how I should like to see it check, not multiply the population. When it reaches its true law of action, every man that is born will be hailed as essential. From Conduct of Life, page 237, Shade of Nietzsche, Attend. End of footnote and reading once again the sentence that contained the footnote. Though Emerson has no delusions about the multitude, and though in one place he talks like a Malthusian and an aristocrat, he is not long in this mood. He sees the onward unconquerable process of life. Man like a wounded oyster mends his shell with pearl. He regenerates from within, because the life in him urges him to keep on, and the knocks he gets show him how to live better, and not, as Ruskin seems to think, and as the priestly mind ever teaches, because man has high ideas thrust down on him from upper circles. Emerson is with the stream of American life, and the unfolding of its own nature. He does not, like egotistic preachers, bear the weight of this world and shake a disappointed head when humanity fails to obey orders. I have no infirmity of faith, he says, no belief that it is of much importance what I or any man may say. I am sure that a certain truth will be said through me, though I should be dumb, or though I should try to say the reverse. He believes that the right leaders inevitably lead, though the apparently dominant legislator and money-changer are corrupt and are competent only in their own interests. 
society is a troop of thinkers and the best heads among them take the best places this to be sure is not true of any visibly present congress or university but it is not untrue when the already lived ages of man are summed up emerson represents an era of excessive individualism and his own emphasis on the single private man is extreme but this is not the inflamed individualism which he says puts a man out of sympathy with his fellows he seems sometimes not to understand the organic growth of society his chapter on wealth is sciolistic in such matters carlyle goes deeper emerson ascribes english prosperity and peacefulness to the national habits of considering that every man must take care of himself and has himself to thank if he do not maintain and improve his position in society a view of life if indeed englishmen have it more than other nations which financial alliances and industrial agglomerations were even in those days proving untrue to fact emerson's doctrine of self-reliance is tonic to the soul it stirs a man to straighten up and make the best of himself but it is blind to the mutual dependence of the parts of the social organism heaven he says deals with us on no representative principles souls are not saved in bundles a survival in emerson of the old doctrine of christianity the world was learning even then that we live and die physically and morally in bundles and that though our whole use of wealth needs revision and reform yet that reform is not in the direction of an otherworldly and individualist view of it though wealth does not make the home poverty often makes the home impossible it is a fine fancy to say that he who owns the day is rich and perhaps the man who asks to have enough of material comforts asks too much as emerson says yet the demand continues mounts increasingly and must be answered if we are to come out of that state of society which he regards as barbarous into the state where every industrious man can get his living without dishonest customs emerson is confessedly not a practical social reformer he sometimes seems to regard with too dispassionate fortitude the agonies and tumults of life he stands in sceptical sympathy aside from most of the movements with which concord was seething the superior mind he says in the essay on montaigne will find itself equally at odds with the evils of society and with the projects that are offered to relieve them he addresses himself specifically to those forces which are in the individual if they are anywhere he directs his encouraging admonitions not to collective mankind but to the single man sometimes his consolations are rather too cosmic as when he assures us that we are part of the astonishing astronomy and existing at last to moral ends and from moral causes for the greater part his electric incitements to better action his applied ethics are true and virile his liberal poetic way of asserting the old doctrine of salvation by works rings sound through any changes of the philosophic climate the only path of escape known in all the worlds of god is performance men talk of mere morality which is much as if one should say poor god with nobody to help him let us replace sentimentalism with realism and dare to uncover those simple laws which 
be they seen or unseen, pervade and govern. That is, never mind the moral metaphysic, but get at the things that count in life. The chapter on worship is an essay on the insufficiency of all dogmatic religions. I see that sensible men and conscientious men all over the world were of one religion, the religion of well-doing and daring, men of sturdy truth, men of integrity and feeling for others. My inference is that there is a statement of religion possible which makes all skepticism absurd. Everything in natural law thunders the Ten Commandments. Emerson is always a preacher, and never quite an essayist, in the sense we mean when we speak of Montaigne, Lamb, Hazlitt, and Stevenson. In his compression and compendiousness he is like Bacon. He has poetry, wit, humor, a genius unlike any other man's for wayward and surprising analogy, but his thoughts are assembled and emphasized for so definite a purpose that his discourses lack the apparent spontaneity of the true essay. It is hard to say what the true essay is, as hard as to say what a true poem is, but you know it when you find it, and this much can be said of it, that it is near akin to the first-rate private letter and to private talk, and that the instinct of Lamb and the deliberate art of Stevenson both achieve it. There is somewhat the same difference between one of Emerson's discourses and a perfect essay that there is between a novel in support of a thesis or a parable to prove a point, and a tale that seems told for its own sake. Emerson's anthology of ideas is grouped to a homiletic end, and is not cunningly casual as if it arranged itself. This implies rather more than less construction, and is against the idea, which some people hold, that Emerson is discontinuous. Sometimes his thought, sailing beautifully as a cloud and putting the reader in a mood for more of the same poetic and shimmering prose, suddenly shatters on one of his sharp points. The abrupt directness of some phrases, many of which are now familiar and therefore doubly arresting when we encounter them, justifies in part the notion that he is incoherent. This notion is enforced by the biographical fact that he did collect fragments and put them into pigeonholes until he had enough to make an essay full. But most essayists write that way, if the truth were told. Moreover, the Emersonian selection is such that a kind of unity is assured in advance, for a fragment, even as it is pinched into a drawer, finds its intellectual brothers there before it. Fragmentariness is a defect that he knew well and if he candidly found it in his own work, he quite impartially and correctly found it in others. Our books, he says, contrasting them with Swedenborg's massive expositions, are false by being fragmentary. Their sentences are bon mot and not part of natural discourse. After one understands what Emerson is driving at, one admires the skill, conscious or instinctive, with which he puts his lectures together. They were effective as spoken, and they are effective now. He is, on the whole, sequential. Sentence follows sentence, cumulative and coherent, the thought selected not only to the purpose which the essay avowedly aims at, but to the greater end which his whole life seeks. His sentences are connected in their subterranean structure, if not in their visible relations. 
in making notes for passages to quote in this paper, I found that I was turning down so many dog-ears that the book grew clumsy and the indicated quotations became too numerous to use. This in itself constitutes a criticism of Emerson. One thing more that I discovered also constitutes a criticism of him, namely, that to pull the jewels out of his mosaic, though it make the despoiler rich indeed, does disturb his pattern. It is a mosaic, but it is designed. He knew perfectly well what he was about. He hitched his wagon of progress to many stars, well knowing that people would remember the stars. The stellar attachment has not been severed by time, and if you read Emerson at all and come on a starry thought in any book, a good bit of Emersonian discourse will trail into your mind. There is amazingly much in him. He gathers into one discourse the wisdom of twenty sages, or such of their wisdom as happened to appeal to him, and he was an unerring chooser. And he unites them to his purpose because his fundamental thought is unified. He embraces his subject, surrounds and contains it. His epigram is the true sort. Its motive is concision, not cleverness. He is like Socrates, what the interlocutor's part of the conversation left out. You silently ask questions and make retorts, and he answers you in the course of the page. He develops point upon point, apparently unsystematic at times, but leading to a foreseen conclusion. He is a master of the finest art for readers who will give their attention to their reading and meet a good thinker halfway, the art of suggestion. You must know something to read him, and you must have had an attack of philosophy and got over it to understand what a great essential philosopher he is, despite the professional philosophers who have not recovered from their attack, but have nursed it as a chronic state of mind. Walter Bagot, in Physics and Politics, put the matter well, and he gives a new twist to the word cultivated that may surprise the Philistine of culture. Unapproved abstract principles without number, says Bagot, have been eagerly caught up by sanguine men, and then carefully spun out into books and theories which were to explain the whole world. But the world goes clear against these abstractions, and it must do so, as they require it to go in antagonistic directions. The mass of a system attracts the young and impresses the unwary, but cultivated people are very dubious about it. They are ready to receive hints and suggestions, and the smallest real truth is ever welcome. But a large book of deductive philosophy is much to be suspected. No doubt the deductions may be right. In most writers they are so. But where did the premises come from? Who is sure that they are the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, of the matter in hand? Who is not almost sure beforehand that they will contain a strange mixture of truth and error, and therefore that it will not be worth while to spend life in reasoning over their consequences? In a word, the superfluous energy of mankind has flowed over into philosophy, and has worked into big systems what should have been left as little suggestions. Emerson takes the little suggestions out of big systems and plants them in his prose. He angles with himself in the pools of wisdom and in his readers' sympathies. 
that statistic which it pleased dr holmes to make and which shows that emerson makes three thousand references to over eight hundred writers sages and other great men does not pulverize him into a bartlett's quotations his confident mind grasps if not the whole universe at least that part of it in the disclosure of which he spent fifty years remediating and rephrasing his illustrations from current sciences and discoveries are often like lily's natural history naive and fictitious he uses illustration like a poet not for itself but to place his thought picturesquely before you in the manner of the parable-maker many of his concrete examples are from everyday life the fibrous roots of his analogies shoot through his native soil he plays to and fro between heaven and earth pointing to an angel behind a new england rock and then to a principle of mundane ethics working out in the vast skies his combination of the homely and the starry gives at once foothold and wings to the reader's imagination slow slow to learn the lesson that there is but one depth but one interior and that is his purpose when joy or calamity or genius shall slow him the woods the farms the city shopmen and cab drivers indifferently with prophet or friend will mirror back to him its unfathomable depth its populous solitude the sweep of that sentence from woods farms and shopmen to populous solitudes is a typical specimen of emerson's melody and volition he has many such sentences many paragraphs and pages of such prose harmonies the texture of his thought is so richly metaphorical he is such a master of analogy that you wonder as you wonder in reading lamb and newman and ruskin why a man of high feelings and noble eloquence saturated with the poetry of life and the words of the great poets should yet fail to be a poet emerson yearned ardently to be a poet and attained to that splendid dialect but his verse is inconsiderable beside his prose it expresses his leading thoughts but they are again and again better expressed in his essays perplexing it is to pass from the rigid cramped verses that precede the sections of the conduct of life into the grand resonances of the essays themselves for some reason he never learned the art of verse a few of his poems like the conquered hymn the humble bee and two or three perfect quatrains place him among the genuine poets whom we call minor because the major poets are so miraculously above them you come frequently upon lines of emerson's that are near to poetry but which instantly confess their failure by reminding you of the better poets for example the flower says the self-same power that brought me there brought you the reader's mind rushes beyond emerson to blake's perfect tiger tiger as emerson delicately says of thoreau the thyme and marjoram are not quite transmuted into honey to him may be applied his own lines at the beginning of the poem destiny that you are fair or wise is vain or strong or rich or generous you must add the untaught strain that sheds the beauty on the rose always strong rich wise generous sometimes quaintly fair and sweet emerson's poetry lacks the untaught 
unteachable strain of ultimate poetry. We remember it chiefly because it is Emerson's. If this seems grudging, let it be remembered that it implies a standard worthy of him, a standard which he himself raised in his many magnificent passages about poets and poetry. The true Emerson is the splendid prose, of which almost every page shows his divination, grand aims, hospitality of soul. Biographical Note Ralph Waldo Emerson was born in Boston, May 25, 1803. He died in Concord, Massachusetts, April 27, 1882. His father, pastor of the First Church in Boston, died when Emerson was eight years old, leaving the family poor. Emerson was never well-to-do, but was passing rich on few hundred a year, most of which he earned by lecturing, which he called peddling his literary pack of notions. He went to Harvard and studied for the ministry. In 1829 he was called to the Second Church in Boston. Three years later he resigned because he did not believe in the communion rite. His sermon on the Lord's Supper, now published in Miscellanies, in which he announced his intention of withdrawing from the ministry, may be regarded as his first essay. The unperturbed candor and intellectual integrity, and the modestly authoritative way of saying things, are there first revealed. His anxieties affected his usually excellent health, and he made a voyage to the Mediterranean. On this journey, and later one, he met some of the distinguished European men of letters, notably Carlyle. English Traits is a record of his travels. The rest of his life he spent at Concord, which he left only to give lectures. He contributed to the Dial, which he edited for some years, and to the Atlantic Monthly, and from time to time assembled his lectures and poems in small volumes. In 1829 he married Ellen Louise Tucker. She died in 1832. In 1835 he married Lydia Jackson. His chief works are Historical Discourse at Concord, 1835, Lectures on Biography, Spoken Discourses, 1835, Nature, 1836, The American Scholar, Phi Beta Kappa Oration at Harvard, Delivered, 1837, Essays, First Series, 1841, Essays, Second Series, 1844, The Young American, a lecture, 1844. Poems, 1847-1865. Miscellanies, 1849. Representative Men, 1850. English Traits, 1856. The Conduct of Life, 1860. May Day, 1867. Society and Solitude, 1870. Parnassus an anthology of poetry, 1874, Letters and Social Aims, 1875, Poems Revised, 1878, The Fortune of the Republic, 1878, The Sovereignty of Ethics, 1878, Lectures in Biographical Sketches, 1883, Natural History of the Intellect, 1893, Journals, 1820 through 1872, edited by E. W. Emerson and W. E. Forbes, 
six volumes so far published, 1909-1910-1911. The Best Life of Emerson is by J. E. Cabot. The finest critical and biographical study is that by G. E. Woodbury. Excellent essays are those by J. R. Lowell, Matthew Arnold, and J. J. Chapman. End of section 5. Recording by Laurie Arsenault, Maine.